The Teach Middle East podcast is brought to you by Schoolfinder.ae. Schoolfinder.ae is a comprehensive schools directory serving the United Arab Emirates. Is your school a member? Go to Schoolfinder.ae to find out more. Now, enjoy this episode. You are listening to the Teach Middle East podcast. Connecting, developing, and empowering educators. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Teach Middle East podcast. This is Lisa Grace, your host. And today I have with me Steve Cronin, and we are going to be talking money. Now, I know that this topic affects all of us, but a lot of us don't talk about it just enough. So I'm going to take a deep dive with Steve and we're going to be talking debt. We're going to be talking savings. We're going to be talking retirement. And we're also going to be talking about investments. So you want to stick around for this whole episode because it might just help you get on the right path to your financial freedom. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, really great to be here. I have lots of teacher friends who have money horror stories. So I get um, annoyed when I hear about teachers getting ripped off a lot of the time by commission hungry financial advisors or getting in debt or even worse, like having to leave the country with nothing. So I really care about helping teachers and really happy to be here today. Fabulous. Why don't you do us a, a little favor and introduce yourself? Let us know a little bit about you and your money journey. Sure. So I run a company called deadsimplesaving.com. And really it does what it says on the tin. You know, I believe that saving and investing for expats should be simple and it is something you can do yourself quickly, uh, simply and and cheaply. But I wasn't born with these skills. None of us are born with these skills and they're they're not taught in schools, which is financial independence is, is not taught in schools. Debt management isn't really taught in schools. And I know these things are changing, but so don't blame yourself if you feel like you don't, you don't know where to start with money. I studied psychology at university and then I ended up as a management consultant, like telling bankers what to do and uh, advising countries like Saudi and, and Libya, how to invest their hundreds of billions of, of dollars. But at the same time, what's really interesting is that people in that field, in financial services, they don't know how to manage their own money. (laughs) And so I found myself in in 2012, I was just about to get into a long-term savings plan. I met this financial advisor and he seemed very sensible and I was adulting. I was finally going to do something with my money and I was very pleased with myself. And I was was chatting to my friend in her car down Shakeside Road, probably stuck in traffic in 2012. And I said, oh, I'm going to invest in this long-term savings plan on, on Monday. And she said, don't do it. Like whatever you do, I lost lots of money in this. Don't do it. And in that moment, she kind of vaccinated me against this financial virus that I never even knew existed. And and it really opened my eyes. And I went and did some research and I found Andrew Hallam, an amazing resource, his website, if you ever come across him and his books, like Millionaire Expat, Millionaire Teacher. And I realized how bad these plans were. And, and how high the fees were and how many expats and teachers had lost money in them. And I really vowed that day to, to start taking control of my own money and, and never let anybody scam me. But I, I also vowed to try and help other people because I was so frustrated with the lack of information. Like we know what we need to do. We just don't know how to do it as expats. 
And, and lots of people don't really want to tell us because they want to make money out of us. And so it took me about four years to figure out how to do it as an expat. And I kept hitting all these brick walls. Uh, there just wasn't the information back then that's around today. And it took me a long time. And then I remember in about 2016, I figured out how to invest as an expat. And I got a bit emotional, actually, because I was like, finally, I can tell people how to do this. And it's so simple. And really, since then, I've dedicated my time and my business to showing people how to manage their own money. So I don't want to manage people's money. I don't sell any financial products or anything like that. I just want to give people an unbiased opinion of like how you can do it yourself. Even if you think you're bad with money, even if you think that you're terrible at maths, hopefully you're not a math teacher then. <laughs> um, and uh, you know you can absolutely do it yourself. Yeah, that is certainly true. I mean, I can tell you for myself that when I came out here in 2010, I was being wooed left, right and centre by all the different financial advisors. Everybody wanted to take me out for a coffee and to tell me how they can help me and how they can make sure I retire with all this money. And I've always been sceptical. You know, I'm just a weird person. If you're so nice, I always go, what's your angle? So I never fell prey, thankfully, to any of those schemes that were being offered out here. But I know many people who have because they're so inviting and they're so convincing. You would never, ever think that they're trying to get you. You know, it's just that I'm a cynic. So <laughs> I just like, what's your angle? Like, where are you going with this? Like, why do you want to buy me coffee and Give me an iPad if I tell you what my friend's phone number is. Yeah, so you did really well. And I think that's the scary thing is that they spread through the common room, right? Because they say, well, you know, you're in this plan. Can you give me five phone numbers yes. of your colleagues? And then they would say, like Lisa recommended, you know, that I speak to you. And that, therefore there's that uh, credibility. And, and they they literally spread like a virus. I mean, it is it is like COVID. And so a little bit of education about what to avoid, I think, goes a long way. It does. Well, let's take it back to a little bit of basics then. You're coming out here, you're a teacher, because lots of teachers are new right now. They're, they've just come in. You know, we've welcomed at the Middle East Teaching and Learning Conference that we just wrapped up at the end of August, we welcomed several hundred teachers who've just joined us in the region. And so they've come out here, they've got great intentions to advance in their careers, but they also have intentions of making and saving money. So we know when we come out here, we do have a double kind of goal. What causes educators to come out with all these good intentions, but end up in debt? What, what happens? <laughs> yeah, what a good question. And I think it does happen to a lot of people. I wrote an article recently called The Seven Phases of Expat Life. Um, you can check it out. On I've my, got to on my... check that out. Can you send yeah. us that link? We want to check that yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put it in the show notes. So it's on my blog, deadsimplesaving.com, and it's completely free and, and you can read that. But it, it literally came to me fully formed at four in the morning. So it was a very strange experience writing this article. But those seven stages, I think they explain why some people get into trouble. So the first stage is that kind of ignition phase. You have this 
this spark and you're like, yes, I'm going to go to Dubai. I'm going to do something with my life. I'm going to move away from my home country, away from my friends and family, and I'm going to do something. So it's active, right? And, and the trick while you're an expat is to keep that spark alive because it can really transform your life. Then you have the arrival stage where everything's new. You don't know what you're doing. You don't really know who your friends are yet. And the danger with that phase is that sometimes if you're paying for your own accommodation, not always, but you don't have a bank account yet, you have to pay for a lot of stuff upfront so you can start getting into debt, borrowing money. Banks realize who you are. They start phoning you up and like, wow, it's easy to get a credit card. Maybe you've never had a credit card before. Suddenly easy to get lots of credit cards, lots of personal loan. And the other thing, and this leads us into the honeymoon phase, is that you start to see everybody having a great time right? And you're working really hard and you've got a bit of a hole in your heart because you're away from your friends and family. And also no one's there who really knows you to put a break on you, right? And say, what are you doing? Like you're partying a little bit too hard. You're spending a bit too hard and you start trying to keep up with the Joneses. And maybe you meet some people who are always like, oh, let's do a staycation in Rack or Fajira, or let's go to the Maldives or, or let's go to Sri Lanka. And you just start spending because you know, let's face it, like Dubai, the Middle East, it is quite expensive. And so sometimes you can end up living a bit beyond your means in that honeymoon phase where it's kind, you know, sometimes it can feel like you're a bit on holiday. You know, there's Dubai especially is a holiday resort, right? And so a bit of that rubs off on you. And if you're not careful, you can end up spending much more money than you intended to. And sometimes you're not even spending your own money, you're spending other people's money. And especially if you are putting money on the credit card and then not paying it off every month. Like, honestly, if you take away one thing from this podcast, you must pay off your credit card every single month because that 3% interest rate per month like that is a lot more, right? You don't even multiply it by 12 because the interest compounds, you know, that could be 40, 42% per year. And so that is how you get into this debt spiral and it can be very difficult to get out of it. And that's when people just kind of get flung out of their job and then have to leave the car at the airport and go back home with nothing other than memories. Yeah. I do know, unfortunately, of several people who've had to do exactly what you've just described. I think it's one of the things that happens when you've been out here as long as I have, is that you see all the phases you've just described play out. Um, thankfully for me, I made all my money mistakes in London in my 20s. And so, yeah. you know, but I do see it and I empathize and I understand what that feels like. So a teacher is in debt. They've made the mistakes you've just described. They're still here. They still have a job. How do they get out of it? Well, the first thing is to be grateful that you have a job, because if you didn't have a job, you can get into real problems, including prison in the worst case, right? What you need to do is you need to move out of the honeymoon stage. And usually it's something negative that wakes you up, right? It's something like, oh, okay, I need to change. And firstly, you go through the socially mature phase where you start saying no to brunches because you've just had enough brunches, right? You've been through this, right? You just had enough brunches. You don't need any more brunches, maybe once a quarter, you know, for a really good friend or something like that. And then you move beyond that socially mature phase into the financially mature phase where you're like, actually, I want to make the most 
of this opportunity of being an expat. I'm not paying tax. I'm not paying any tax on my investments. This is an incredible opportunity to transform my finances. And you start to take this seriously. Now, if someone is in debt, I distinguish between expensive debt and cheap debt. So really anything that's above 5% interest rate, I is would- that per annum? Yes. And that's a reducing rate rather than a flat rate. Go and ask your, I don't want to talk about that now, but go and ask your your maths colleagues what the difference is. But the reducing rate is always higher and the flat rate is a marketing rate. So you can get a little bit tricked here. But per year, 5% and above, I would say is expensive debt. And you must just pay it off because what are you going to make in the stock market? Maybe 7% long-term average per year. So 7% versus 5%, like you shouldn't be investing in the stock market. You should be paying off your debt. If it's cheaper debt, if it's like below 4%, 3%, 2%, doesn't matter. You know, you don't have to pay that off in such a hurry. Just keep making those monthly payments and then you can invest in the stock market or invest in a property or, or whatever. What are it those is cheap debts? that you? Because if it's credit so card, that that... cheap debts would be a, a car loan, okay. a mortgage, Typically, that's something that, that's secured on an asset. Right. But with cars, you have to be careful because, again, people get seduced into that lifestyle and they buy a car that's too expensive. I've seen this time and again. You know, they want to impress their friends. They buy a nice sporty car. And, and then that's like a millstone around their neck because the payments you know, are quite high. And if they stop the payments and they get into trouble and you can end up in a situation if you bought a brand new car the value of that car drops much faster than the value of your loan balance. And so you can end up in a nasty situation. A lot of teachers sometimes just stay for two years and then go to another country, right? You could find if you have to sell your car, you have to find some extra money to pay off the loan balance because the value of your loan is higher than the value of your car now. So don't get into that situation. So cheap debt is okay as long as you know the value of the asset, whether it's a house or a car, is well above your loan balance. But expensive debt, if you find yourself in expensive debt with a credit card balance or a big personal loan and you're starting to struggle, all your energy must go towards paying this off. Have a look at your cash flow. Make sure you know exactly when these amounts are going to come out of your bank account and start planning accordingly. If you know you've got 16 days to find some money, then you can find it. If you know you've got one day to find some money or minus three days, right? You get a message or an angry phone call, then then you're in trouble. So start planning this stuff. Start understanding like, what exactly do I have in terms of assets? What do I have cash in the bank? What do I have in in any kind of other asset? Can I borrow something from my parents? Maybe even offer them one or 2%, which frankly, they're not going to get in a bank account. So they may be willing to do this, you know, just so that you can pay off your debt of 40% a year. Talk to the bank, see maybe if you can get a credit card converted into a consolidation loan that will change it from a credit card debt to a loan debt. So maybe you can get the interest rate down to 17% or 9%. It's not nearly as dangerous as 40%. There are lots of things that you can do, but you have to own this, right? You're an adult now. All your energy should be focused on paying off that debt. You've got to reduce your expenses way down, say no to the brunches, move, sell your car if necessary, like maybe even move accommodation if you're having to pay for accommodation. You have to take action. The good thing that will come out of this is that you will never want to be in debt again. And you will be a much more financially disciplined person once you get out of that debt and you will be ready to take on the next phase, which is to start investing. 
Yeah, I do agree with you. I feel like what happens is that people get overwhelmed. So they get into debt, they realize, oh my God, this 4% is actually 44%. And they realize that when they do the calculations, they're, they're going to be here for an eternity trying to pay this thing off. So they get really disillusioned, bury their heads in the sand, and you know, some people just run away. But I think what you've suggested as to tackle it head on is the right thing to do. So moving on quickly, because I'm very conscious of time, you're in debt, you have expensive debt. Should you also be saving as well? Or should you just pay off your debt? Yeah, that's a good question. It's an interesting balance. I think you need to save enough. So there's a concept called the cash buffer. And ideally, you should have six months total expenses in cash. Right. And what that allows you to do is if you suddenly lose your job or a relative suddenly gets sick and doesn't have proper insurance, you can live off that cash buffer. And I would say this is the second most important thing I'm going to say today, because I've had letters from some clients of mine who, who've been to my workshops and said, like, thank goodness you told me about cash buffer because I'm now living on it during the pandemic. I'm living on my buffer. And if I hadn't known about it, I wouldn't have had one. Right. So this will really protect you that six months cash buffer. Now, ideally, that will protect you before you get into debt. Right. But if you find yourself in a situation where you are in debt and you almost have no cash, I think it will be a bit of a balancing act. I think at least if you can find 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 dirhams, reals, whatever it might be. So your salary is going to um, a little bit of building up a buffer and then the main part building up and paying off your debt. It is incredibly dangerous to literally have no buffer whatsoever because there's always unexpected expenses that come along. You know, If you're paying off your debt and then suddenly your car breaks down and you can't even afford 2,000 dirhams to fix it, then you're going to be in trouble. I mean, you're literally living hand to mouth, right? And what we want to do is build up stages of resilience. So first off, if something happens to you, no problem, you've got your cash buffer. And then if your investments are enough, you, you may be able to walk away, right? And, 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 then, and then you're okay. It's really important to move through that debt payoff period as fast as possible. But yes, you should have a bit of cash in reserve. Right. So that brings me nicely on to savings. How much in terms of percentage and how often should people try to save? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if you look at the UK, for example, I think the average person saves about 7% of their post-tax salary, which is just <laughs> appalling. Really, you should be saving as much as possible. And uh, you're living tax-free. So that helps. If your accommodation is covered, then that's even better. You know, it's a, it's a huge load off your mind. I would target 50%, right? Now that sounds crazy. Now, and obviously I appreciate some people have kids who are expensive, but you should really be targeting 50% of your salary to save every single month. If you have loans and you're making payments, I know it complicates things a little bit, but firstly, understand what your savings rate is right? So your saving rate, what percentage of your income is left over at the end of the month after all your expenses have come out? So calculate it so that you know, you know, whether you're good or bad, and then do something to make it a bit better every single time. So it may be 20%. You come up with 10 ways. How can I get it to 25%? And maybe even how can I get it some unrealistic ways to get it to say 40%, but at least list those 10 things out. And you might find that two of them are actually doable. So do just relentlessly try and increase 
your savings rate. Because if your savings rate is 50%, you are very, very resilient. You have your cash buffer, and then you start investing that 50%. Imagine investing 50% of your salary every month. You're going to build up an investment portfolio that is going to transform your life surprisingly rapidly. Whereas if you're only saving 5% of your income because you're living the fast life, you're almost borrowing from your future, right? You're not providing for your future. And you have to be careful because as expats, we do not have pensions. And it is very easy to live a fun life in a place like the UAE, not have a proper pension. Forget your gratuity, right? It's never going to be big enough, right, to support your future. You can have a fast life and then I know people who have done this, like age 55, 60, they go back to their home country and they have almost nothing. Wow. And, and they barely have any support system. So they have end up with less than a teacher would have in the UK, right? So be careful. You must start building up your investment portfolio. It's almost like having a pension. You don't actually need a pension structure because we're living tax-free here, right? Or more or less tax-free. But you do need an investment portfolio that is going to start providing for you. And start having a think about what do you want your future to look like? Are your retirement expenses going to be covered by income from property or income from stocks and bonds or some pension that you picked up back in your home country or some business that you invest in, although that's much more risky? If you love property, fine, it can be like 80% property. If like me, you don't really love property at all, then it can be like 80, 90% stocks and bonds. Figure it out and then educate yourself how you're going to generate that income. I like that you're going into the investment part, but just hang on a little bit because I still want to unpack savings. Yes. Because you said saving 50% of your income after expenses. Mm. So people are going to say, well, that means I'll have no life now. How do you balance that? Because you do need to live now because no one guarantees the future and you don't know how long you're going to be on this earth. Do you want to just save and save and have no life and then you 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 die or something and that's it? How do you balance that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think happiness is really important. Like it is an amazing you know, opportunity to be in a fun place like, like Dubai or wherever you might be. So make the most of it. I like to draw a balance between your net worth. So like if you take all of your assets, like what you you own, like your cash, maybe a property, like some stocks, like whatever you have, minus your liabilities, so all your debts, you know, what is your worth? Right? That is like tracking your weight in kilograms. Like it is the fundamental number you should be tracking. Like what is your net worth? And is it on track to where you need to be? If you want to stop work, stop being a teacher in 10, 20, 30 years, then are you on track to do that? And if you're not, then you need to kind of triangulate between your net worth and your monthly savings rate, that we've just talked about, and happiness, right? We can't forget happiness because it's very similar to losing weight. You can't live on cabbage soup all day, right? Every day. So you have to have some happiness. But if you are deep in debt and your investment portfolio is negligible, then maybe you just need to reduce happiness a little bit and increase your monthly savings rate. And because you know, you've got that sense of direction, you know why you're doing it, then you will find it easier and more sustainable to do this. You'll say, well, you know, yes, I'm going to ban myself from buying that Louis Vuitton handbag or buying that iPhone Pro Max 13 or whatever, 
but I'm able therefore to invest a bit more in my future. And actually that's going to give me more happiness. And also you will start thinking, well, what actually makes me happy? If you're paying lots of money for brunches or gym membership or golf membership that you don't even like, right? Then you can cut that stuff out without any real impact in your happiness. So, so it's worth figuring out like what actually gives you value, what actually makes you happy. And then you can cut out everything else that doesn't really make a difference to your happiness, boost your monthly savings rate, boost your net worth, accelerate your time to financial independence. So that's how I would do it. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, there are lots of things you can do for free that bring you great joy and and happiness and, and you don't have to be spending a lot of money. So yeah. But what's the best place to save while abroad? Not talking about investments just yet, but just to keep that cash buffer that you've mentioned. Should we keep it at home in wherever our home countries are? Or should we keep it here? Where, where we I, I think, I don't love the idea of keeping everything 100% in the country that you live in, right? Typically, it's an emerging markets country, and you want a bit more global resilience than that. So what I would say is maybe keep 25 to 50% of your cash buffer in, let's say, for example, the UAE or your, your, your country where you're resident, and then maybe 50 to 75% of the money either in your home country, if your home country is stable and you're happy putting money there, or in an offshore account. Now, sometimes it's not that easy to open an offshore account if you don't have lots of money to save. And it sure is not going to generate very much interest, right? But it's more important to have that money, even if it's just sitting there. There are places like Standard Bank, Swiss Quote. You can open those accounts without needing too much money. And then for those with more, there's HSBC, City, et cetera. And those are proper offshore accounts. So they might be in somewhere like Jersey or the Isle of Man. So it's not in your home country and it's not in your country of residence. If something happens to you or your money in, let's say it all gets frozen for some total disaster in your country of residence, at least you have a good chunk of your cash buffer offshore that you can access in case of need. Yeah. That's good advice. I wondered about that myself. I do keep majority of my money in the UK, but I'm thinking, but if I need it here, I'm here with my family, what happens? But I, yeah, we need to get that balance right. So let's think about retirement for a second, because when you live an expat life, sometimes you can forget about retirement. It's not that difficult to forget that you're going to get old one day and you won't be able to work. What's the best time to start thinking about retirement, really? Now. Like start thinking about it for sure. It's the planning that's important. It doesn't matter whether your plan is accurate or not. It's important that you start thinking about it. And so start thinking about things like how much do you actually want to live on in retirement? Are you the sort of person who's going to move to Bali and you'd be quite happy with $2,000 a month? Or are you going to move back to the UK and you'd be quite happy with say £4,000. Some parts of the UK, you can happily live on, say, two, two and a half thousand pounds. Others, you might need four, five thousand pounds. Or are you going for like the fancy lifestyle? And are you going for something more like $10,000? Right. So start having a think like, where are you roughly? And then you can always change those assumptions and see what the impact is. But start thinking about how much you are. Where are you going to retire? Where would you like to retire? Are you going to go back to your home country? Or are you going to go to a cheap destination? 
Are you going to go to like a nice sunny European country? Are you going to try and stay in the Middle East? These things make a difference. So start having a think about it, and then you'll be much more prepared in the future. And at least you can plan your your finances accordingly. And then I think once you know how much roughly you want to spend, maybe ask your grandparents, right? If they're still around or your parents, like how much do you actually spend per month? It's a bit of a personal question, so approach it the right way, but it's incredibly useful. And think about how much do we spend now? If you exclude mortgages and kids' education, things like that, because they will be done by the time you're retired, hopefully, how much are you actually spending? And try and put some financial stakes in the ground to figure out where you might be heading. Once you figure that out, then you can start thinking, well, how much do I need? How much do I need to save so that I can call myself retired? So with property, it's fairly easy to understand. Like you need a certain amount of property that will generate that $40,000 per year or whatever you need to live on in retirement. With stocks and bonds, there's something called the 4% rule that you can go and Google. And you can use that as a way of turning your portfolio into an income stream that you can take out every year in retirement. Uh, And so that allows you to set targets. Let's say if you want to live on $40,000 a year, you need a stock portfolio of a million dollars, right? Now that sounds like a big amount, but that's why you need to start saving now towards it so that then you've got a clear sense of direction. So yeah, I know retirement sounds like a long, long way away, um, but that's part of being financially mature is to say, well, even if I'm 28, you know, and we all wish we started this at 28, right? Even if I'm 28, I'm going to start thinking about this gently now and just start planning accordingly because the earlier you start, the easier it is, much yeah. easier. I have a personal question. I have several questions. Gosh, I don't know how I'll fit them all in, but we'll we'll push as far as we can go. I have a teacher's pension that I'm vested in in the UK, and I keep getting calls to move my pension. Should I do it? Are you going to go back to the UK? Oh, I've grappled with that question a hundred million times, and I'm going to say no, simply because I can't see. Now I'm in my forties, and I just I can't see myself going back to a classroom in the UK right now. I don't know if that will change. No, I would say no, just for now. Yeah. Mm. So pensions are complicated and I don't want to give kind of personal financial advice just off the cuff like this. (laughs) Um, But I think you need to be wary of shifting a pension offshore. Mm. You need to understand why you're getting lots of phone calls and messages about doing it. It's because it earns the advisor a lot of commission. Right. And so that should be a red flag. And the tax authorities and the financial authorities in the UK are very wary of people moving their pensions offshore. You can do it, but you need to be careful. I would rather, as a first move, check that it's being managed properly. Right. And it depends what kind of pension it is. Don't really want to go into the details. Now, yeah, but, it's okay. But, it's a teacher's pension. I will do some digging. But I was just wondering, because I'm sure there are other teachers who've been getting that. You know, you've taught in the UK for a while. You have a pension and you are vested. And so now people are like, oh, move your pension. And I'm like, do I need to do that? I would say be very, very careful about it. And yeah. I would not, I would definitely not do it until you're certain. Yeah, in fact, I, I probably wouldn't do it. I probably yeah. wouldn't do it. But again, everyone's circumstances is a little bit different. So, yes. so I have to be careful. But make the default answer no. That's mm. what I'd say to everybody. Make the default answer no way. And if you've really read up on it, 
and you've got five different opinions and you know that the person advising you is not getting commission out of it, then you know, you're paying them a fee or something, then then maybe. Okay. So here's my follow-up question. Nothing personal, but I definitely want to know because I have friends who haven't thought of this and they are of a similar age as I am and they don't have a pension. So let's make it general. You're in your 40s, your 50s. You don't have a pension. You haven't thought of it. You haven't planned. What should they do? What do you suggest? I suggest that they start investing to build up an investment portfolio. It's never too late, right? Even if you're 58, I mean, it's not a great situation, but it's never too late. So start building up an investment portfolio that can grow and it can start and it will generate income for you in in your retirement. So you can look at property, but I find property investing a bit of a hassle, like buying a buy-to-let property in the UK or whatever. The buy-to-let party is is over, right? It was it been over since like 2010, 2015. Like uh, it, it's basically over. I would be very careful about that. And there's a lot of hassle uh, involved in buying a property. Investing in the stock market, if you know how to do it, we may have to talk about this another time. It, it's very quick. It's very simple. You can learn how to reduce the risk. You just need to learn how to do it. And for expats, the secret sauce is two things. And it took me several years to figure this out. You need to open up an account with an international brokerage, or there are robo-advisors in the UAE, for example, that allow you to do this. But an account like Interactive Brokers, big broker in the US that accepts expats. And then you need to invest in something called exchange-traded funds. So this allows you to, at the click of a button, buy a share in a fund that that's value is driven by like 3,500 other shares spread across the world. It's incredibly diversified. So instead of all your money sitting in a bank account in Dubai, then now thousands and thousands of companies and thousands and thousands of employees are working hard to grow your money. So you can have a global stock fund a global government bond fund is literally all you need. And you invest in the same thing every month or every quarter. You buy the same thing and you're investing with like a 10, 20, 30 year mindset and you just leave it alone. And the more brainlessly you can do it and follow the process, the better you will do. That's a very, very quick summary, but it is actually much simpler than people think. Lots of banks and financial companies want you to think that it's complicated, want you to think that you should be paying them lots of fees to do this. It's not complicated. Any teacher can absolutely do this by themselves. I can vouch for that. Definitely. It is very, very simple. We've run out of time, but I do want to bring you back because I want to talk index funds in more depth. And I know that's what you suggest as a vehicle for investment and as a part of your plan for retirement. I do understand that a lot of people may find this complicated. So if you guys want to hear Steve and I talk a little bit more in depth about index fund investing, please message me, leave a comment, wherever you're listening to this podcast, my email is editor at teachmiddleeast.com. Let me know because I think we can do a part two, right, Steve, can we do a part two? 
Sure, absolutely. I, I love talking about this stuff and I can talk about it all day. So if people want to jump the gun, go to deadsimplesaving.com and I have lots of blogs about this topic. People can also you know, do courses. I, I run courses and weekend workshops on this so that people can understand how to manage their money and how to invest by themselves. So there's lots of information there so that they can check it out. But yeah, I'd be delighted to come back and talk about it. Yeah, so we'll try and get Steve back in a part two, obviously by your popular demand. So our listeners need to give us some feedback so that we know that they want this. But I want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge with us on the Teach Middle East podcast. It's been a real, real pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and I hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Teach Middle East podcast. Visit our website, teachmiddleeast.com, and follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes.